0: Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice, and profit. You'll learn new, innovative, and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale, or systemize, and even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, chartered Surveyor, Author, and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And this is the second in a short series of two podcasts in which we're considering the 12 questions which I think you should ask yourself when you start in property, but just as importantly, that you should ask yourself on a regular basis on your property journey, no matter how experienced you are, just to make sure that you keep yourself on track and online and heading in the right direction and doing the things that you need to do. And if you listen to the previous podcast, you'll know that we looked at the first six of these 12 questions and we thought about things like What am I trying to achieve in property and why am I trying to achieve that? What's the best strategy to help me to achieve that? How much time do I have? How much money do I have? What sort of property am I looking for and what sort of property will fit my strategy? And of course the million dollar question really, where is my gold mine area or where can I find those properties? And before we crack on with the the next six questions, I'm going to answer a question which I regularly get asked and I know some of you may have been thinking, which is why did I invest in Newcastle if I was living just outside of Nottingham? Well, I won't go into the whole story because it's actually a bit sad, Um, but essentially I moved to Nottingham a few years back, and at the point when I moved to Nottingham, it happened to coincide with when I first started putting together a property portfolio for myself. I didn't know Nottingham at all, but I came across an opportunity in Newcastle where I could see that the figures worked. Now at that time there was no progressive property, there wasn't even an Amazon or a Google, if you can imagine what life was like then. This is like in medieval times, there was nothing at all. And so I didn't have any guidance, there was nobody to help me. But even I, with my limited understanding of maths, could see that the figures worked up in Newcastle. And I could see that I could do the BRR, which is to buy a property, refurbish it, and then refinance it in such a way that, because I'd added so much value to the property, I could get all of my money back out, meaning I could use my limited pot of money to buy as many properties as I wanted. Because I found that opportunity in Newcastle, to be honest, I just thought, well, crack on, let's just get on with it, because I could look around, I could procrastinate, I could look for other areas, I could try and do this analysis near home, but I just felt the longer I took over that, the more time I'd be wasting. And at some point, I had to just choose somewhere, and it was as good as anywhere. Have I ever regretted it? Well, no, not at all. Sometimes people ask me, well, isn't it a bit limiting, or isn't it a bit of a disadvantage to be 150 miles away from your portfolio? No, (laughs) I don't see it that way. If you've met me, if you've been to Masterclass, if you've been to any of the trainings which I help Progressive with, you'll know that that's not my attitude at all. I'm actually very glad to be at a distance from my portfolio, because I see property investing as being a passive activity. I don't particularly want to be involved in the day-to-day nitty-gritty, but I know from past experience when I have invested near a home, that I've always been tempted when the properties are near home to get involved. Not for any particularly good reason, to be honest, it's just that it just seemed the mature thing to do. Being passive and living off the passive income is great, but I've still got this bit of a work ethic and so if the properties were only five miles away, I'd probably wake up in the morning and think, do you know what, I ought to make myself useful and do something. And I used to go around and interfere. Far better to leave it to the professionals. So if the management is in place, and I've got a very good managing agent, by the way, who allows me to do this, it means that it's very easy to keep property at an arm's length, literally, and to be a passive investor. So very short version of why I invested in Newcastle and not in Nottingham. Subsequently, though, I have done bits and pieces in Nottingham. One of the things which I learned when I came to Progressive was the idea of doing flips. Now, again, you think, well, why, Peter? It's a very obvious strategy, but it hadn't really occurred to me that I could do it. But I have done flips in Nottingham. Flips because I don't want to have tenants on my doorstep, so I'm very happy to buy a property in Nottingham and then sell it, because I know that I'm not creating a tenancy nearby. I don't really want to deal with tenants just the way I am. You may want to deal with tenants, in which case, absolutely fine buy near home so that you can then do your own management. Personally, I wouldn't advise it, but I know some people want to do it, and that's okay, we're all different. So let's get back to our 12 questions. We thought about the first six questions in the last episode. If you haven't listened to that yet, then I suggest you do and grab a piece of paper and a pen and start to answer the questions because it will help you to put together what's really a sort of a rudimentary business plan for your property business, which I think you'll find very helpful. And as I say, it's not just for beginners, it's for more experienced investors as well, to make sure that you're on track. So in this episode of the Progressive Property Podcast, we're going to look at questions 7 to 12. And question 7 is, have I got the right plan to find and buy my property? Now, if you have followed through on the other questions, if you've thought about what it is that you're trying to achieve from property... If you've thought about the strategy that you'll need to achieve whatever it is you want to achieve in property, if you've thought about the type of property you need to be buying in order to achieve what it is you're trying to achieve in property, and if you've thought about where you're going to buy them, the next step is obviously to actually go out and find the properties so that you actually can buy them. And by now you'll know that I'm not a big fan of just doing this randomly. I'm not a big fan of just popping down to the estate agent and buying properties. We need to be much more strategic than that. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misinterpret that as, as, as me saying I don't like buying properties from estate agents. I, I love buying properties from estate agents. I've bought many, many properties from estate agents, dozens and dozens of properties from estate agents. But what I wouldn't do is just go and look in the window of the estate agents, look at the pretty pictures and say, oh yeah, I know that road, that'll be okay, I'll buy that one. We need to be much more strategic and to understand our numbers much better than that. Now I know that you know that because you're listening to this and this is the Progressive Property Podcast and so I'm guessing that you've probably had a certain amount of property education, but believe it or not, There are still many, many investors outside of the community who buy in that random, haphazard, ill-considered, unstructured way. So it is a legitimate warning. Now, there's a lot of stuff that we need to be thinking about when we're thinking about finding the properties and making sure that we buy the right properties. So we're going to have a think about that now. We're going to think about how do we actually put a plan together to find the right properties. Well, the first thing we need to think about, and we thought about this in an earlier question, is about our time. And I suggested that you think about how much time you've got and whether you can actually get any time back to put into your property business. Maybe it's giving up on TV, maybe it's giving up on Facebook, cutting back on TV or cutting back on Facebook. When you've got the time, and when you've identified the time, then literally mark it on your planner, mark it on your calendar on your iPhone, mark it on your physical paper diary, but actually make sure that you have a schedule of some kind showing what you're going to do. And this is what you really need to be planning. You need to be planning going on to right move to do your research. You need to then plan in literally the times to make the appointments with the agents. When you've made the appointments, you then need to mark those on the diary to make sure obviously you get to the appointments. And then you actually need to take the time to physically get out of your chair, leave your computer, leave right, move behind, and actually go and look at the properties. Now, if you remember back to the last episode, in time, when you understand the process fully, you will be able to outsource a lot of this to, to other people, possibly even as far away as the Philippines. The VA in the Philippines could do a lot of this stuff for you. When you start, though, I suggest you do it so that you understand the process. And it's your time, so you make sure that your time's been used wisely. So how many viewings are we actually going to do before we buy our properties? That's a a great question. And that's going to vary a lot, isn't it? It's going to depend upon how much experience you've already got. It's going to depend on how much money you've got. But by and large, as a general rule of thumb, the more experienced you do get at buying properties, the less number of viewings you'll need to do in order to buy a property. That's because you'll learn, particularly if you focus on one particular area or one particular strategy, you'll begin to learn exactly the sort of property that you need to be looking for, which means that you'll be able to vet them probably from home or from going through agents' details much more easily and quickly. When you start though, I'd almost suggest that within your chosen area, or if you have a particular strategy in mind which you're following, Go and see as many properties as you can because everything's a learning experience, and learning about property is like anything else. It's about practice. One of the things which I, I know from teaching masterclass at Progressive is that many new investors are very worried, for example, about how to cost a refurb or how to spot if there's anything wrong with the property. Now, one of the best ways to learn that is actually just to go out and look at property. Now, of course, you don't know what you don't know, and so there may be things which you miss, or you may not be too sure of the figures. But once you actually get out and about and start looking, and once you start researching what you've seen, you begin to get a picture, and the experience begins to build very, very quickly. So I'd almost suggest, if an estate agent suggests you look at a property which you know doesn't actually fit with your strategy or your plan, I'd go for two reasons anyway. Go, firstly, because it placates the estate agent, and it helps to build rapport from the estate agent because maybe they're under pressure from a client to get more viewings and so you're helping them out and they'll appreciate that. It's a bit of a quid pro quo. Are they more likely to be helpful to you in the future when you need help? Well, yes, absolutely. But the second reason is no learning experience is wasted. So if you can spare the time, go and look at the property because just looking at properties, you're gonna learn so much. Think about the construction. See if you can see any obvious defects. Go away and look at sold prices on Rightmove and see if you can come up with an idea of what the value of the property is or will be when it's refurbished. It's all good stuff and it's all good practice. But in order to get your very first deal, assuming for example that you're starting with no properties at the moment and starting perhaps with very little experience, you're probably going to have to do something like 40 or 50 viewings before you buy your first property. Now those 40 or 50 viewings might result in, I don't know, you putting in 10 offers. And maybe of those 10 offers, maybe two or three will be accepted. I don't know, that would be quite a good hit rate. But if only one is accepted, that's 40 or 50 viewings which were well worth doing. You've learned a lot, you've built rapport with the agent, and you've got a deal at the end of it. And by the way, in 10 years time, will you be glad that you bought that property? Yes, you will. So make the plan, schedule the time into the diary, because if you don't, discipline yourself. It's not gonna happen, so do it. Now, property is a funny thing, because although I'm trying to make this sound like it's sequential steps, actually a lot of it all happens all at the same time. So while you're making the appointments with the agent and doing your 40 to 50 viewings in your first month, and by the way, if you can do 40 or 50 viewings a week, Guess what? You're going to absolutely smash it. Only you know how much time you have though. If you can only do 40 or 50 viewings per month, do that as well. But while you're doing all of that, you need to be doing other stuff as well. And one of the key things you need to be doing is finding yourself a good or even great mortgage broker. Where are you going to find a great or a good mortgage broker? Well, I would suggest that you're listening to the Progressive Property Podcast. I'd go onto the Progressive Facebook group and I'd ask, recommendations. Word-of-mouth recommendations are worth their weight in gold, aren't they? And there are some really great mortgage brokers out there, by the way, who can really help you supercharge your business. Equally, and I hate to say this, and I'm not naming names or thinking of anybody in particular, but there's also some pretty awful mortgage brokers out there as well, What you don't want is just somebody who's going to fill in a form and send it off to Birmingham Midshires. Nothing wrong with Birmingham Midshires, by the way. I've got a few mortgages with Birmingham Midshires. But you need somebody who's a bit more creative, somebody who understands the strategy that you want to undertake, and who can help you with that strategy. Not all mortgage brokers are equal. That's why it's so important to go onto the Facebook community, for example, or to go to your networking meetings. Obviously, progressive network meetings are the best, But there's other network meetings which are pretty good as well. We're not precious about it. Go to those, ask other investors who they would recommend. Will they all tell you? Well, probably not, but some might. And you only need a couple of good recommendations to find a decent mortgage broker. I think a decent mortgage broker is worth their weight in gold. Sometimes I'm asked questions like, well, Peter, do you pay your mortgage broker a fee? Should I try and find a mortgage broker who's free and who only charges the bank? Honestly, if you're thinking that way, you're looking at this in completely the wrong way. My mortgage broker allows me to access money which allows me to do deals, which has allowed me to build a significant portfolio, which pays me passive income, which allows me to do what I want. As far as I'm concerned, my mortgage broker is amazing and I pay them whatever they ask. When you start, I know that it's it's natural that you're thinking about cutting costs, but the reality is, If in five years' time you have 50 properties in your portfolio because you met a great mortgage broker, then you won't be worrying about the fees that you paid your mortgage broker. You'll just be thinking about how great life is because you've got 50 properties giving you passive income. So don't get bogged down in it. Just find somebody who's really good. And if you have to pay them, then pay them. And if you have to pay them a lot, then pay them a lot. It's money well spent. Now, if you've listened to this far in the podcast... Hopefully, you're going to go and take action. But I know sometimes, particularly when we start, it can all seem overwhelming. And you might be thinking, "Oh, Peter, this this all sounds a bit much. I'm not sure I can really do this. I'm not sure that I can really spare the time to do this. I'm not really sure I can put the energy into doing this. And I fully understand that. I've had my wobbles as well. I think it's very easy to assume that when you see people who've done okay, that it must all have been easy for them. No, that's not true. If you talk to anybody (laughs) who's sort of in the limelight you'll find that they've had their difficulties in getting there. And I fully understand that that's a feeling which many of us have. But just think of it this way. A general principle of success, which I have found to be true in my 35 odd years in property, is that small things done consistently are going to be the things which actually create the results for you. In fact, that's so important, I'm going to say it again. Small things done consistently are going to be the things which actually create the results for you. So a small thing could be just scheduling 20 minutes a day to go on to Rightmove to look for properties in your goldmine area. Now it may be that as well as that 20 minutes, you then have to schedule five minutes to ring the agents to make appointments. But that's a simple thing that you could do most days. That's only 25 minutes. Most of us could find 25 minutes. And maybe, and this is probably a good thing to do, you can actually chunk all the viewings together. So you can do all the viewings on a Saturday morning, for example. Or if you want to go direct a vendor and uh, not have the agent hanging around, you could do them all on a Sunday. Because most agents wouldn't want to go out on a Sunday. By the way, a bit of an advanced technique. I'm not suggesting you cut the estate agent out, by the way. But it can be helpful sometimes just to talk to the vendor to find out why they want to sell. So that could be a plan, couldn't it? That's just 25 minutes. Guess what? If you did that 25 minutes every day for six months, following up by going out and doing your viewings on the Saturday, what's going to happen? Well, if you do it diligently, you will do deals. And not just one deal, but you'll do many deals. It doesn't have to be hard. Action doesn't have to be hard. As I so often say, Property itself actually isn't hard. The principles behind property are actually very, very simple. The hard bit is actually just going out and doing the work, and that's where most people fall down. So if it's feeling overwhelming, just schedule a little bit every day. And over a period of time, it's the compound effect. Those small things done regularly, done consistently, will end up producing big results for you. Now, question eight Let's assume that we've gone out, we've done our 40 or 50 viewings, we've made 10 offers, we've had maybe two or three offers accepted. And by the way, here's a top tip for you. If all of your offers are being accepted, guess what? You're offering too much. So you want to be make sure that you're offering on a fairly aggressive basis, but even offering fairly aggressively, because it's a numbers game, if you're viewing 40 or 50 properties, you're going to find that some of those offers are going to be accepted in the end. So, big question is then, Peter, what am I going to do if I get an offer accepted? Well, I'd suggest that you buy the property, but Peter, I'm not sure that I can get the money. Well, we've just thought about that in part. Hopefully, by the time you actually get an offer accepted, you'll have a mortgage broker involved. Now, I've already said, not all mortgage brokers are equal, so make sure you've got the right mortgage broker involved. By the way, make sure that you've got the right broker for the strategy that you're undertaking. So for example, HMOs are very specialist. I would not go to my buy-to-let broker to try and raise HMO finance. Now, I kind of went through this process almost accidentally about two years ago when I was doing a HMO, and my broker who is really, really good at buy-to-lets told me that he could help me with a HMO financing project and I believed him. Do you know what? It did not work. What I did in the end was what I should have done in the first place and gone to my specialist HMO broker. My specialist HMO broker got me the money very, very easily. It's horses for courses. So make sure you're talking to the right people. The other thing we need to think about is not just going to the right broker for the right strategy, but going to the right broker who not only understands the strategy, but preferably has invested in their own rights, so they understand the full implications of undertaking that strategy. So for example, I'm sure that you probably realise this, but many buy-to-let lenders will have a, a limit on the, n- the amount of money they'll lend to you or the number of properties which they'll allow you to buy with them. And so for example, Birmingham Midshires and that group of companies, they limit you to three properties. Interestingly, it is three properties and it doesn't really matter whether they're three properties which are worth 100,000 or whether they're three properties which are worth 250000 the limit is just three properties. A bit strange, isn't it? Other lenders have a limit in financial terms. So I think Paragon, for example, who are a big buy-to-let lender, the last time I checked, I think their limit was £5 million. Pounds. So you need to have a broker who understands this, because what you want your broker to be able to do is to be able to plot a course using different lenders, so that, for example, when you've used your three with Birmingham Midshires, for argument's sake, He then or she takes you on to another lender to then continue the buying process. Now, you might think, well, that sounds quite simple, but there's a little bit of politics out in buy to let, believe it or not, because not every lender actually likes every other lender. Now, I can not explain this. It all sounds a bit strange if you're not involved in the business. But it could well be, for example, that lender B doesn't like lender A, but they like lender C. The consequence being that if you borrowed with lender A first and then went to lender B, they might say, well, no, actually, we don't want to lend to you because you've already got loans with lender A. But if you go to lender C first and then go to lender B, and then you can go to lender A at the end because lender A doesn't mind lender A or C. I know it sounds weird. Why it's like that, I've got no idea, but it just is. So you need a broker who kind of understands all that kind of buy-to-let politics behind the scenes. You also need somebody who's got access to the whole of market. Now, many brokers will tell you that they have, but I'd ask them to define what they actually mean by that. You see, the reality is that there's so many different lenders offering buy-to-let mortgages at the moment that you need somebody who's able to keep on top of the whole market because deals are coming and going. Lenders are continually revising their products, changing terms, changing what they're offering. At the time of recording this, There's getting on for, I think, 1,300 different buy-to-let loans that are available in the market. You need somebody who understands that and understands how they're all changing. By the way, the fact that there's so many different lenders offering so many different products like that is actually great news for us because sometimes I'll meet people who want to get into property and because of mindset issues probably or experience from the past or because somebody's told them that it's hard, they assume it's going to be hard for them to borrow the money. The reality is there are so many different products out there that no matter what your circumstances or experience, there's probably going to be somebody out there who will lend to you. There probably will be a buy-to-let product which fits your criteria and fits your needs. Now, I'm not saying it's necessarily going to be the cheapest, but it doesn't have to be the cheapest because whether you're lending or borrowing at 2.5% or whether you're borrowing at 3.5%, doesn't really matter. The key thing is that you're borrowing the money to get yourself started and building your portfolio. Even if you're feeling skinned, even if you say to me, well, Peter, actually, I've got really more fundamental problems than that because I don't have a deposit for a property or it's going to be very hard for me to prove income. There's still ways and means that you may be able to do this. So, for example, many buy-to-let lenders will accept what they call a gifted deposit which is where a third party can lend you the money to put down as the deposit on the property just so long as, and this is the key thing, and you'll have to look at each individual bank's criteria to find out what exactly it is they want, but most of them will just want to know that that money has been lent by a close relative and also that the money has originated within the UK. Why? Because they're worried about money laundering. But for example, if you have parents or grandparents who may be able to lend you the money to pay the deposit on the property, the banks will, generally speaking, be perfectly happy with that, as long as you declare where the money comes from. Or it may be that you'd like to take out a buy-to-let loan, for example, but maybe your income isn't high enough. And by the way, with recent changes, because the Bank of England are now leaning on lenders, it's become a little bit harder to borrow the money. Banks are making more stringent checks. They may look at your income, Most of them will want a minimum income of about £25,000. If you don't meet that criteria, don't give up though, because potentially what you could do is maybe team up with a JV partner who has an income, and then the bank will accept a joint application from you, and they will merge your income and look at that. Paragon, who I've already mentioned, who who are a large buy-to-lender, as I understand it, last time I checked, they would take an application from four individuals for example so you could team up with a number of people if you needed to. There's usually ways and means of doing it and you could structure the whole thing with your JV partners so that everybody is protected and everybody is making a decent return from the property. And of course one of the things which we love at Progressive is using JV partners who may just be able to finance the deals for you One of the best ways and one of the most creative ways, I think, of actually doing the whole BRR, buy, refinance, and refurbish model is to maybe find a JV partner who can finance the purchase and the refurb for you. You can then find the the property. You can then project manage the refurb. You can wait six months. You can then refinance in six months and pay your JV partner back. Very doable. Many, many people do that. So think about JV partners. If you haven't been to the JV Day at Progressive, you might want to come along and, and attend that. Lots of great ideas on how to find people with the money, how to structure the deals. But there's plenty of people out there who've got the money. We thought about this in the last podcast, so I won't repeat it all here. But if you haven't made that list yet of people that you know and you haven't got the money, maybe that's why. Make the list. Talk to the people. Question number nine. Which business entity should I buy my properties into? This is really topical, isn't it? Ever since the changes with Clause 24, or as it's sometimes known, Section 24, everything has changed in property over the last three years, and the way that we used to see things has changed, and the way we used to buy our our properties has changed. So let me explain what Section 24 is. Back in 2015, I think it was, the then-chancellor, George Osborne, decided to disincentivise people going into buy-to-let. And the, the way he found to do that was to reduce and eventually abolish the amount of mortgage interest that we can offset against rent when calculating how much income tax we pay. Now just to be absolutely clear, this only applies if you buy the property in your own name, and it's all around the calculation of the income tax that you'll pay on the rent of the property. Now in the old days, we could offset all of the mortgage interest against the rent, to, and then deduct one from the other, that would be the figure which we'd start using before we started calculating the rent. That's being phased out. It's being phased out so that by 2020, we will not be able to offset any mortgage interest against the rent, although there will be a 20% credit which you'll be able to apply. It's all a little bit complicated. And To be honest, I'm not an accountant. You'll need to talk to your accountant about it. Thing is, bottom line, it obviously makes it more expensive to hold properties in our own name because potentially, Most of us, if not all of us, with properties in our own name are going to be paying more tax, which you may think is a good or a bad thing, depending on your view on tax. But that's the reality. So what is the way around that? Well, at the time of recording this, the way around this is to buy properties into a limited company. Why? Because limited companies can still offset all of the mortgage interest against the rent before calculating operation tax. Now, that doesn't entirely solve the problem, to be honest, because there is no ideal. Even before all of this, there was no ideal way of setting up your property business as far as tax was concerned. The difficulty with buying into a limited company, though, is that when you want to take money out of the limited company, unless you do that by a loan, which of course you'll have to pay back at some point and pay interest on in order to satisfy HMRC, When you take money out of the company, you will probably have to pay tax of some kind, and that could be income tax. In the first instance, though, it does help us to get around the whole problem with mortgage interest, and you'll need to run the figures and sit down with your accountant and see what the effect is going to be for you. But the received wisdom is, now, in the property world, most people would be better off buying their properties into a limited company and not buying them in their own name. Now, you need to check with your accountant because everybody's financial situation is different. I'm not an IFA. I can't advise you. This isn't advice, by the way. I'm just having a bit of a chit-chat. You need to talk to your accountant. But you'll probably find for 90, 95%, maybe more, that for most investors, it's going to be the right way ahead. But you need to just check the figures. There's some great books out there, by the way, which will help you with this. Ian Wallace, who's a member of the progressive community. Go onto Amazon, find Ian's books. You'd also go on to Tax Café, I think it's taxcafé.co.uk, do a lot, of, uh, a lot of resources about tax and property, well worth looking at. Now, before you worry about it, because I know this is a question which I'm quite often asked, will that affect my lendability? So, for example, if I'm going to do buy-to-lets, simple, single, vanilla buy-to-lets, will I be able to borrow buy-to-let finance if i buy my properties into a limited company? The answer is yes, you will. It's actually not very hard, by a complete fluke, not because I was being clever, because I couldn't foresee what was going to happen, but I set my property business up as a limited company 20 or so years ago, and I've always bought through my limited company, and I've always used buy-to-let products, which are geared up for limited companies. It's made no difference to me at all. Now, it's true that at the moment there's maybe more lenders who will lend to individuals than there are lenders who will lend to limited companies. But there's still plenty of lenders who will lend to limited companies, so I've never found that to be a difficulty. Paragon, who I've mentioned a few times, by the way, I have no affiliation with them other than the fact that I've got a few loans with them, they'll lend to limited companies. I think Fleet Mortgages, Aldermore, Shorebrook, Precise, many others will lend to limited companies. I think if you Google it, you'll find out that there's loads and loads of them. So I don't think you're ever going to have a problem finding the finance. Is it going to be more expensive? Not necessarily, but if it were to be more expensive, we're talking about fractions of a percent, not double the amount of money. So, for example, if a, a buy to let loan to an individual is two and a half percent, you might find that it's two and three quarters or three percent to a limited company. Not enough to make a lot of difference. So, don't be put off by that. So, as a practicality, I'm sometimes asked, can I borrow against my existing limited company? And the answer is probably no. Most banks want you to set up A limited company specifically for buying the properties into. Now of course on day one when you first start your limited company won't have traded, your limited company won't have any accounts, your limited company won't have any properties and so I'm sometimes asked, well is that a problem? Well actually, strangely enough, it's not. That's exactly what the bank wants to see in any case but what the bank will actually do is that they will look at you and they'll look at your financial situation And essentially, although they lend the money to the limited company, they're lending it on the basis of what you look like. So don't worry about any of that. The thing is, it sounds hard, and if we think about it too much, we might worry that it is hard. But when you go out and you start doing it for real, you realise it's all very, very straightforward, especially if you've got a decent mortgage broker. So don't worry about it. Just go out and do it. You will get the money if you want to get the money. Question number 10, question number 10, well that's an interesting one. Question number 10 is what will my exit strategy be? Now you might be thinking, but Peter, isn't it a bit early to be thinking about exits because I haven't even bought my first property yet? Yes, now is the time to be thinking about exits. It's not premature. The problem is that if you set your business up in a way now and you want to change it to a different way of doing business in a few years time when you've got a few properties in the portfolio, is probably going to be quite complicated and possibly even expensive in order to change your setup. So it's as well to start thinking now about what your exit is going to be before you start. So what are our potential exits? Well I know a lot of investors who will tell you that their exit is essentially death. I've heard Rob Moore talking about this and saying that his exit from property will probably be death. If you come on Masterclass, my co-trainer Ann Halton She says that her exit will be death. In other words, they're never going to sell their properties. Now that they've bought the properties and they've got the properties in their portfolio, their intention is to keep them forever and for the properties to actually outlive them. But of course, if you have a different strategy, and if you remember back to the last podcast, I was saying that maybe the best strategy for us isn't the most obvious strategy. So if you're going to do some flips to sack your boss, then... The exit is going to be that you're going to sell the property, so you need to be making sure that you can find the right properties to sell them on. That's why if you're going to do flips, probably the best sort of properties for flips are going to be better quality properties which you can sell on to owner-occupiers, as opposed to cheaper properties which you might want to sell on to an investor. The difficulty with selling on to an investor is if the investor is like us, they'll want a decent discount, won't they, which makes it harder to make a profit. That's why I'd suggest that flips are always better to owner-occupiers. Going back to our last question about which entity do I buy into, your exit might suggest that you put everything into a limited company. For tax purposes, you may want to do that anyway. But if you put everything into a limited company, then maybe over time, for example, if you have children, you can let the children have some of the shares. Now, there may be tax consequences of doing that. You'll have to talk to your accountant. You may be able to use your capital gains tax allowance, for example, to be able to feed shares to your children tax-free, talk to your accountant, but that could be a possibility. All sorts of ways and means of doing it. A possible exit with a limited company could be selling the limited company. Or you could sell shares in the limited company. If you wanted to take on an investor and sell half your stake, you could do that. Or you could sell all of the properties out of the limited company and keep the cash in the limited company Maybe just invest the cash in something. There'd be so many different options. Again, you want to sit down with your accountant and talk to your accountant, not only about what the different exits are, but the tax implications of the different exits, which are probably going to be different for each of us because we all have different tax situations and different financial liabilities and situations. Talking of which, question 11. What are the tax implications of owning buy-to-let properties? Well, we've kind of covered this in part, in in the earlier questions. It's well worth thinking about, though, because clause 24 is quite restrictive. It's particularly restrictive if you're going to own the properties in your own name. That's why I'm suggesting that you don't. Do talk to an accountant. So as things stand at the moment, it seems to be that buying into a limited company is the right way forward. But is it always going to be the case? Well, I don't know. It's entirely possible, isn't it, that at some point in the future, the Chancellor may say that he's going to take away the ability of limited companies to offset mortgage interest when calculating corporation tax. At the last budget, a few weeks ago, he didn't do that. Interestingly though, what he did do, and which was missed by a lot of the commentators in the press, but it has implications for us as property investors, is he took away indexation relief for small businesses, freezing it from January 2018. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you think about capital gains tax for an individual, if you sell a a property and make a gain, you have an allowance of about £11,500, which you can offset against your tax. The equivalent for a company was indexation relief, and indexation relief allowed you to inflate the purchase price, the value of the asset from the date at which you bought it, at the rate of inflation before you deducted that from the eventual sale price, thus reducing your gain. Bit complicated, if you're not sure what I mean, Google it, you'll find HMRC, have got some good explanations of this. Point is, from January 2018, that goes by the by. So if you buy properties, say in February 2018, you won't be able to benefit from indexation relief within your limited company. Does that mean it's a waste of time buying properties within a limited company? Well, no, not at all, because we'll still benefit from being able to offset our mortgage interest when calculating corporation tax. But it's just one more small, almost unnoticed attack on landlords and investors that was introduced at the last budget. So these things are changing the whole time. The point I'm trying to make is we need to keep on top of this, because what's right today may not be right in the future. But at some point in the future, if it's not right then being adaptable, because we are as property investors, we will find a way around it, and we'll find another way of doing it. And then question number 12, which is the last question in this series of 12 questions, is how active or passive do I want to be in my property business? How active or passive do I want to be in my property business? Now, this is absolutely fundamental, and I think it's worth planning this from the outset. A bit like planning what our exit's going to be because I think you need to consider right from the very beginning how much work you want to do within your property business and by the way that's not necessarily the same as how much time do you want to spend on your property business although it might be related but how much effort how much time do you even want to be thinking about your property business or do you want to be completely passive and when you're not actually doing anything in the business you're not even thinking about it that's probably the ideal if you want to be completely passive like I do. You see, the problem which a lot of us are probably going to have is that when we start, we might well still be employed, in which case we're going to be probably part-time in property, and we're not going to be full-time, and we might even need to take on some help in order to help us to grow our property business quickly, and we've thought about that in earlier questions. So there may be roles that we would normally do in a property business ourselves, but we're going to have to get other people to come in and help us because we're stuck in a full-time job. An example of that could be that under normal circumstances we'd love to source our own properties, but if we just don't have the time, we may have to rely upon deal packages or property sources or JV partners who are going to help us to find our properties. It could be an example of that. It could be that when we transition from being in a full-time job into being full-time property investors, the temptation may then be to take on more than we should just because we've actually got the time to take those roles on. I firmly believe that just because we can doesn't mean we should. What are the things that you're doing at the moment which you're doing because you can, that you shouldn't be doing? There's a challenge for us. Now, to be honest with you, I think one of the big dangers is wanting to manage the properties yourself. And it's and something which is a bit of a bugbear of mine, and I know that I can get a little bit evangelical about it, because I don't like managing properties, and maybe that's why I'm so against it. I know that some people, they don't mind managing the properties, but To be honest with you, I think our time is much better spent doing deals and finding JV partners than doing all the mundane day-to-day stuff, which we can employ somebody else to do, and they'll do it relatively cheaply. I know that maybe sometimes we'll balk about paying an agent 10% of the rent for managing the property. But for a typical property of mine, for example, where a typical rent's maybe £500 a month, that's £50 a month. That's not an awful lot of money if it then frees me up to go and do stuff which is gonna help me to do more within the business and grow the business far more than 50 pounds in a month. So think about what it is you're actually trying to achieve from your property business, and then think about how you can best allocate your time to make that happen. Now personally, as you've already guessed, I like the idea of being as passive as I can. If you came to do masterclass with me, you hear me joking around that my goal is to lie on the beach checking my banking app, which probably actually sounds very arrogant, and I don't mean it to sound that way. But I honestly don't want to really get my hands too dirty doing the practical day-to-day stuff. I love doing deals, and I love negotiating, and that's the bit of the property business I really love. Managing tenants and stuff, not really for me. Organising repairs, not really for me. And that's why I've got a great team of managing agents and a great power team who helped me to do all that kind of stuff. So think about what it is you're trying to achieve. To some extent, this is gonna have a bearing on the strategy that you adopt. As I said in the the last podcast, if you're going to do HMOs and serviced accommodation, for example, that's far more hands-on and far less passive than just doing a simple, single buy-to-let, a vanilla buy-to-let. Buy-to-lets can be very passive, HMOs can be quite time-intensive, Service to accommodation can be quite time intensive. So just think about what it is you're trying to achieve. Be very careful to guard your time. Now, as a property investor, there are some things you do need to do, and these are the things which I think you should be concentrating on. You should be f- concentrating, number one, on finding deals, and number two, you should be concentrating on finding sources of finance. And we've talked about this throughout these two podcasts. Those are the two things which are going to make your property business fly once you manage to get those sorted. That's where you should be putting your time and your effort. So those are the 12 questions which I'll be asking as a beginner and regularly referring back to even as an experienced property investor, just to make sure that I'm still doing things in the right way, making sure I'm doing the right things at the right time. you grab yourself a piece of paper and a pen and you actually sketch out the answers to all those questions, you'll find by the end of it, you'll have really the simple basis for a business plan and you'll have something which you can refer back to, which I think you'll find immensely helpful and immensely valuable. So, there we are. Go out and do it. That's the main thing. Don't spend so much time planning that you don't actually do anything. That's an aid. It's not enough in itself actually doing it is what's going to make you a successful property investor. So I hope you did find that helpful. If you have any ideas for any future podcasts and you want to get in touch, then please get in touch through the Facebook group and the community, the progressive community, or or send me a message or messenger. If it looks like something which will help everybody, then I may do a podcast on it. If you want to know more about me, you can come to my website www.thepropertyteacher.co.uk where you'll find bits and pieces about me, Peter, and various resources. Otherwise, I'll see you in the next podcast. Here's to successful property investing.